Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you today by Yetter Farm Equipment. I'm Brian O'Connor, lead content editor for No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Farm Equipment for sponsoring today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment that you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Adam Chapel is moderately busy these days. The fifth-generation Arkansas farmer and winner of the 2022 Responsible Nutrient Management Award was working on getting his planters ready for work when he sat down for this interview. Elsewhere in Arkansas and Louisiana, fields were being burned and tills were making the round ahead of the planting season. It was a stark contrast between conventional and no-tillage. Chapel began using no-till within the last decade and no longer uses synthetic phosphorus or potassium at all. While Chapel, who holds a degree in entomology from the University of Arkansas Fayetteville, benefits from a relatively mild southern climate, he says his system of covers no-till and mulch potentially has lessons for growers in frostier regions. His latest push is seeking lower seed populations against constant yield. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Yetter Farm Equipment, Chapel joins us to talk about how he got into no-till, what methods he employs, what he sees for the future, and more. So where are you guys at right now in the annual cycle of the farm? Yeah, so we're just uh, basically getting geared up for planting. We're uh, working on planting equipment and doing machinery maintenance. So mm-hmm. we're, uh, we really don't have any field work to do because we're as much no-till as we can be. So we're just getting ready to start putting some burn down out and planting. Um, for burn down, what do you use? You know, obviously glyphosate and then we'll add some kind of oxen to it, maybe 2,4-D or dicamber or something like that to help with the broad leaves. But that's about it. And then pre-plant, we'll use a light rate of germoxone and then whatever pre-emerges we're going to use. How have the prices been? Have you been able to get all the, the chemicals that you need or the, the herbicide that you need? So far, the supplies have been okay. The prices are 40 to 50% more. You oh, know, geez. Yeah, they're they're quite a bit higher than they were last year. So, you know, some things have doubled or, yeah. you know, even more than that. So it's going to be tough, you know, making that budget come yeah. out. Yeah. How does um how does that affect are you anticipating higher price points on the selling end as well to help offset this at all or so we have been booking, you know, in these rallies here, uh we've gotten some really good commodity prices locked in, but you know, we we don't lock in a hundred percent of our production, which would because if we have a failure or something the market goes the other way, we're gonna be exposed there. So we've done the best we can to lock in to try to cover our costs. Now, when you say lock in, that means you have signed a, a contract for deliverables. And so yeah. if you have a failure, then you're liable, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
Sorry if that's a stupid Rube question. <laughs> uh, no. no, it's it, and it happens too. I mean, you know, we we've uh, been caught before. Luckily, the times that we haven't been able to fill a contract, it was, we were on the good side of the market, so we didn't end anything or right. owe anything. Excuse me. Uh, but at the levels we're pricing at right now, you know, if they go down, they can go down a long ways, and you could be on the hook for quite a bit. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of volatility. We had a poll on no-till farmer specifically focused on wheat because that's related to the Ukrainian news. And we had about a mixed response to my recollection. A majority of guys saying, oh yeah, we're going to plant more wheat because, um, you know, the prices are going up. Right. But we also had a fair number of guys that said, um, you know, we're going to plant less because... You know, inputs are going up. Yeah, yeah, inputs are going up. And also volatility means more exposure, right. essentially. Yep. So more risk. Yeah. Well, there's definitely some a lot more risk built in this year than than there is normally and there's plenty normally so yeah it's it's kind of unnerving right now but it is what it is so it's what we do all right now what's your rotation so we, we've got four primary crops that we grow cotton corn soybeans and rice and uh, some of our acres we rotate all four of those on the same acre so you know there'll be a four-year time before each crop comes back and some some of the heavier ground we just do uh, beans and rice but um we try to go a broadleaf, then a grass, and broadleaf and grass. So, okay. And and for in, intents and purposes, I've been talking to farmers in Louisiana. That was part of my big trip down here. Rice counts as a grass, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. We don't uh, grow flooded rice. Yeah. That's the. Can you explain a little bit how the dry land system differs from the flooded? Yeah. So we just furrow irrigate, and you know, down here that's a common term, but we just have furrows that we pull and run water down, and we do that for every crop. So we've just started doing that with rice and people have been doing that around here for a while uh, but it's really working well for us you know it suits our mixed soil type we've got you know fields that'll have sandy spots and gummy spots and when we try to hold a flood the sandy ground we just pump and pump and pump and we're not getting anywhere and then this fur irrigation works a lot better for us okay so, they take it from that you're irrigated and not dry land right right yeah okay. we're irrigated yeah how many acres uh so we'll have probably 2,000 acres of rice this year, and then 3,500 beans and 1,500 corn, and then about 400 cotton. Yeah. That's usually how we... So you're, you're, it doesn't sound like you're doing rice this year at all? Yeah, no, we'll have about 2,000 acres of oh, rice. Oh, okay, yeah. all right, wow. Yeah, yeah, it'll be uh, that fur irrigated rice. And I understand rice is a huge crop in Arkansas. Like, mm -hmm. you guys are the, the number one producers of rice in the country. Yeah. Is this something that you inherited just from coming into the farm? Like, how did you get into the rice? Yeah, we've always grown rice. I mean, my grandpa did and dad did. And then when me and Seth took over, we scaled our rice acres way back just because of the labor it requires for flooded rice and the difficulty we had holding floods here. And But since we've transitioned to furrow rice, then it's back big in our rotation again, which is really good for, for, our, for everything. Got it. Um, now, I spoke with um, uh, Conda, I think, at Jubilee Justice. Um, your name came up there. Um, I, I hadn't even expected it. They were actually the ones that brought you up. They said, oh, yeah, Adam Chappell's helping us with the... Now, they said, you're a little bit different than what they're doing because they're doing organic-focused. Yeah. But um, they name-checked you as somebody who does the kind of rice that they hope they can kind of implement. How would you make that connection? Well, through meetings and stuff like this. But, yeah, so, you know, we're not organic, but... Uh, they're trying to get a regenerative label for things and you know basically we just try to cut inputs as 
far as we can. You know, we, we don't want to use a lot of water because water's an expense. It's a, it's a cheap expense here, but you know, we, we don't want to waste it. And then <clears throat> fertilizers, we, we've eliminated all synthetic P and K. We still have to use some nitrogen sources, but you know, we depend on the soil to cycle nutrients and we have a composting operation that we use on the farm. So we, we try to source waste material, you know, gin trash, rice hulls, sawdust, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we uh, get some native microbiota out of our forest lots and stuff and make inoculum to break that stuff down. And we use that for our fertility source. You know, okay. it's taking somebody else's waste and making something good with it. Is that something that you think is broadly applicable or is this something that you guys benefit from uniquely because of the kind of confluence of well, operation? I think that if you're willing to do the work, it's, it's broadly applicable. I mean, there's, there's feedstocks everywhere. I mean, there's in, in your cattle areas, you've got, you know, barn pack and stuff that they compost now. And I'm sure you can find a car good carbon source somewhere, maybe dried distillers grains or something. You know, I, I'm not familiar with anything like that, but you know, down here we've got rice hulls everywhere mm -hmm. and we've got cotton gin trash everywhere and poultry litters everywhere. Sawdust, timber industry in Arkansas is big, you know, mm -hmm. so we, we have access to sawdust and, you know, all those things are, once they're back, you know, once they're rotted back down are full of plant available nutrients. I mean, it's just really good stuff. Plus the biology that you're adding to the soil every time you apply that stuff is a big deal. What do you do for soil testing in terms of how do you monitor these, the conditions that you're trying to accomplish? So our soil testing used to be really intense. I mean, we used to do grid samples and, you know, we'd do that every other year. And, you know, we tried variable rate fertilizer and stuff. We, we really used to rely heavily on soil sampling, but we started just asking some hard questions and we don't do a lot of soil sampling anymore. We do some Haney testing and then we do some, uh, total nutrient digestions, but we don't do much Malik 3 or anything like that unless it's for demonstration purposes. Uh, and kind of how that came about is, you know, we were spending all this money on fertilizer, you know, P and K uh, specifically. And, you know, we would get, we'd check our levels and they'd be optimum and high, they'd be good, you know. And then we'd get this recommendation to put out P and K as a removal rate well, we'd, we'd do that when we started not doing it on some. And then we would take samples again, and there wouldn't be any difference for where we put the removal rate, fertilizer, supplement, and no fertilizer. We did that two or three years in a row, and the, there wasn't any, ever any significant difference. I mean, there'd be a few pounds difference, just, and that could be anywhere from being a foot apart. You know, it didn't, it didn't matter. You could get this different level out of the same hole. I've done that also. Uh, so... We didn't see any significant difference where we've been spending the money where we hadn't. So, you know, as far, as far as depleting the soil or mining the soil, we haven't seen that. And we still pull some just, like I say, for demonstration purposes, just to reassure ourselves or a landlord or, or another farmer that's looking to cut inputs. I mean, I just, the soil testing, in, in my system, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't correlate, I mm -hmm. guess. Well, and, and I would imagine, too, it would be hard to justify the expense of that removal stuff yeah, if, it's not if doing you're anything. not seeing a clear yeah. benefit. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I would understand when I'm putting the removal rate, if those plots didn't go down. I mean, that would make sense. But then the other half of the field not going down also didn't make sense to me. You yeah. know, why isn't it going down? P 
and K are two of the essential macronutrients that we need. How do you reckon you got to a point where you don't have to apply them anymore? Was this cover crops or the is the mulch handling it? Well, you know, we just started the uh, compost and this is just our second year for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's new. Um, I, I think that the, the, that the addition of cover crops and, and going as close to no-till as we can go has just ramped up our biology so much that we're getting cycling that we didn't used to get, maybe. I, I'm not a soil scientist, so I, I don't have the answer for that, but, <laughs> but there's definitely something going on. The only P or K that our crop ever sees prior to compost, just a little sniff in our starter, yeah. you know, and that's it. We hadn't put anything out. We stopped on a lot of the farm in 15 and then we completely stopped in 16. So it's been, you know, going on six years with no wow. added P or K. Um, how did you get into no-till and cover crops in the first place? So we were fighting pigweeds, which is huge down here, and we were going broke doing it. Yeah. Uh, and broke and crazy probably too. I oh yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, just our herbicide bill just for pigweeds was huge. I mean, yeah. we just were going backwards. And I started looking at organic farms to see how they did it. And most everything I saw was tillage, you know, a bunch of tillage. Well, I knew every time we tilled, if we got a rain, we'd have a carpet of pigweeds again. Yeah. So I knew that was out. I mean, we'd be doing it every day. Mm -hmm. um, so I stumbled on a guy in Pennsylvania growing pumpkins in cereal rye, you know, and he had, he had a big, huge, tall grass called cereal rye, and I didn't know what it was at the time. And uh, But man, he was rolling that stuff down and planting pumpkins in it, and it was clean. I mean, it just looked great. So I started diving down that hole and got 300 acres of cereal rye is all I could afford the first year. And we planted that and have been haven't looked back since, I mean. And now do you harvest those, um, you burn it down, so I'd imagine you can't harvest it and use those seeds. How competitive is the cover crop seed market right now? So the cover crop seed market's real competitive, but cereal rye and things like that don't grow well in our environment. I don't know, it's too humid or something. I don't know what it is, but I've tried to grow some of that seed and I may get a year where I've got a 20 bushel yield and I, you know, Looking now, knowing what I know now, that's pretty good. But a lot of years I'd get two or three bushels, you know, so I just wouldn't even harvest it. It just doesn't make seed down here good. Yeah. Uh, you know, our climate's not good for it. And I have not found one that really does, you know, here. So I just leave the seed production to the other parts of the country that are good at it, you know. Um, what have you seen in terms of, uh, so have you tried other things besides cereal rye? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we plant. Well, any number of grasses we we plant uh, annual rye, cereal rye, triticale, uh, black oats. We've planted, you know, just white oats. We've tried some spelt, and I'm sure I'm missing some more barley. We tried some barley. We're into broad leaves now too. You know, lots of you know rat, we use a lot of radish. Uh, yeah, really like it. Um, you know, we we use some mustard sometimes, and any number of legumes. You know, we just kind of mix it up. We just started with just cereal rye and have evolved to a little bit of everything. Um, what kind of yields do you see as a result of this? Have For, they gone up? This no, they hadn't. They hadn't really gone up, but they hadn't gone down either. You know, we had a we had a time where we were learning how to do this, mm -hmm. and we had some problems. You know, and it seems like everybody that gets into the cover cropping and stuff does, and it's usually with corn. That's where we had it. You know, we let our seed in ratios get out of whack before we planted corn, and of course, we didn't know any better because yeah. we've been throwing soybeans in cereal rye and they're doing great, you know, never saw any troubles and then decided to do it with corn and, you know, got hit with that pretty good. But now that we know how to manage 
the CDN and termination timings and different things, we don't we don't have any trouble with that anymore. But our yields, you know, we rent 95% of our ground. We don't own a whole lot. So, you know, our yields are competitive for our area. If they weren't, you know, they'd get somebody who, you know, w would be making bigger yields. So that's always my credibility check. I know if, uh, you know, if I'm not competitive, I'm not going to be here. So, so our yields hadn't dipped. I mean, they hadn't gone up either, but our expenses have gone down so much that making the margins there instead of just paper thin, you know. Return on investment as opposed to overall yield, right, basically. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, when me and Seth were just getting started, we were typical know-it-all young farmers. You know, <laughs> we wanted to make the biggest yields and we would put out anything that they told us would do that. And, you know, it doesn't take long to spin yourself into a hole doing that, you know, at the promise of higher yields. And what we figured out is uh, you're going to get whatever Mother Nature allows you to get, mm -hmm. you know. you're you're at the mercy of, of mother nature. So, you know, I've, I, I've uh, fertilized corn for 200 bushel corn and I've made 240 and I've made 160 with the same fertilizer regime. So yeah. Just bought that tractor out there. We had never owned one of them before. <laughs> Is it one of their new, cause they just won some kind of award, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's one of the new ones. Oh, it's, nice. it's, it's a hoss. <laughs> yeah. Oh, why? What uh, can you take me through a little bit since it's come up? Uh, what kind of informed that decision? Like, how did you decide on that brand versus the others? Or, well, basically, uh, hydraulic capacity is the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that tractor's got so much hydraulic capacity, and these planters we're running now take so much hydraulic flow. You know, they were just gutting these tractors that we have. These John Deere's, they just just couldn't handle it. You know, it, whenever you like specifically picking up. Whenever we'd pick that planter up, the tractor would just all the hydro, it took all the hydraulic demand just to pick that thing up. Mm. So the fans would slow down and we'd lose suction on our plates and then we'd have skips at the end until it picked back up. And it was just a, it was just too, it's too big of a machine for the, the rigs we had. Yeah. So that's why we looked at that brand there. Yeah. What kind of planter do you use? Uh, we've got a John Deere case. We've got some great planes and then. The one we do all our rice with is that Harvest International. Out there. The one that they're working on? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, they're rebuilding all the, you know, we rebuild them every winter. And uh, we've been having trouble getting parts in, so we're just now finishing up. But uh, but we've got everything we need now, so. Okay. We'll be, we'll be ready to go by the end of the month, which is when we usually start planting. That's good. There's some guys that ordered new planters for the season. Yeah. They're in trouble. They're still waiting <laughs> on them, yeah. Yep. Yeah, the place where I get parts for this one, over in Carlisle, man, their lot's empty. Everything they had is sold, and then everything that they ordered is not in yet. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Hopefully, they'll get it there before planting season. Yeah. Um, so, th this is a family farm or family yeah. operation? Can you explain yeah. a little bit how it came to be? Like, how many generations? That kind yeah, of me and my brother are the fourth generation here. Uh, so, our great-grandpa farmed right up the road, and then our papa, you know, dad's dad farmed here, and then dad farmed with him, and now me and Seth are doing it. Yeah. Were they around for the transition to no-till? Like, and what was the feedback yeah, so, that you got? Uh, you know, Papa was already retired, but he still was over here a lot, and uh, he just, you know, he just liked uh, coming over and driving a tractor, or hanging out. You know, he wasn't, <laughs> he didn't really care at that point. Yeah, uh, just liked being over here. And then Dad was still farming then, and Dad had always kind of liked no-till. Mm -hmm. uh, we just hadn't figured out how to do it in the South yet. You know, he was around here. He would have been considered minimum till, I guess, because yeah. you know we did 
pool beds and stuff every year and but we didn't we didn't work everything down and float and you know we didn't tear it completely down so we did as little as possible but uh, you know when we got into the big letting the cover crops get big he got a little nervous because he didn't <laughs> i mean because we were planting in six foot tall stuff i mean he we had never done that before and it made him pretty nervous but he retired not long after that you know he just he'd had enough farming and uh just left it to us but he's still over here every day he was here this morning he's uh, he's gone to carlisle to get some parts now so he's he's still over here and involved he just doesn't have to sign any notes or anything anymore so <laughs> he but he likes coming over here every day still so but now the transition was pretty smooth i mean you know we had some you know like i said with the corn we had some yield hiccups there early on when we were trying to figure out how to plant into plant corn into a high biomass thing you know once when we were learning that 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 was a little touch and go, but uh, but after we figured it out, I mean. What fixed it for you? Well, so there's several ways that we've handled it. Uh, I, the uh, most obvious and easiest one is termination timing. You know, if you terminate early enough, uh, you know, your carbon to nitrogen ratio never gets out of whack. Yeah. So, you know, that's the easiest one. And if you don't have a lot of weed problems and stuff, that's, a, that's, a, that's okay, but we like to let our stuff get bigger. And uh, so there's a couple ways we've been handling it. There's a, a guy I talked to in Tennessee, a farmer over there, you, you probably know him, uh, but he, he started doing chemical strips where he was gonna plant. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, that's that was super smart. He'd leave the middles growing and just plant a strip where the corn or cotton was gonna go. Yeah. So we started doing some of that. And uh, then uh, the other thing is we just kind of front load some nitrogen a little bit, you know, to kind of balance that CDN out. Uh, and really the only crop we got to do that on is corn. Yeah. The rest of them. Yeah, it's so nitrogen. Out yeah, that's right. So, so do you guys use uh, legumes at all as a cover yep. to kind of help? Yeah, you know, that that's another thing we do. We try to plant a more broadleaf heavy mix ahead of corn, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of mitigate that from, from the jump, you know, but uh, still grasses can really tiller and get prolific. So you got to stay on top of it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we've we figured out how to handle it and every situation is different and we just manage it accordingly. How are you managing nitrogen prices this year? Well, you know, inherently we don't put out as much as we used to, you know, uh, just because of the system we're in, you know, we just don't have to, you know, like last year, you know, we made a lot of 200 to 240 bushel corn, which, you know, for my area is pretty good, mm. you know, uh, I know up in the high states they probably laugh at that but you know down here that's pretty good yeah and uh you know we only had 180 units of total in on that and you know our, our university recommendation for my soil types 220 oh wow to make 200 so yeah. you know uh, i think our nitrogen use efficiency in this system is a lot better than it used to be and um you know we're we're going to try this year to uh you know, we've got a budget number in mind and we're going to try to stay under that and we're going to try to split our applications into smaller doses and kind of spread the applications out some more to try to gain some more efficiency so why drops or a side dress or we, we've we're going to do some dry product um okay. we've got some y drops we are going to use also uh is this the know, first time with y drops because i've heard no uh, people either hate them or love them or they both love and hate them yeah well <laughs> that, we actually uh used them two years ago and we hadn't used them since and not because we don't, didn't like them or anything it just the we just didn't feel the need to i guess i don't know it, you know it's just not something we do every year mm -hmm. uh but 
we hadn't used them again just because we don't use a lot of liquid uh just because it's kind of time consuming mm-hmm. you know but we are planning on using them this year uh so it just to kind of spread our applications out more well and mm-hmm. more precise means you can maybe save on the overall volume yeah. so that that seems to make yeah, sense. yeah that's the thing we're trying to cut our units down some more this year just because of the price of everything and we feel like if we can increase our efficiency some more by you know placement and and, and additional smaller applications and we can we can get away with less and still stay in our budget number we have in mind yeah uh, which is you know with the prices we're seeing right now on inputs is getting tougher all the time but yeah we're, we're still going to try to do that and the input prices were high before ukraine in part because of belarus right it's na- it's a northern neighbor yeah i mean i mean to the extent that i know anything about it that's what I've, i remember reading, yeah you know so. yeah the fertilizer and stuff started getting high last fall i think maybe i can't remember exactly when but i remember it going up but here lately it is really high yeah you know uh, it's it's high enough to the point where i've considered changing rotation a little bit mm-hmm. but i just really don't want to do that you know yeah i, I feel like it's that's a huge decision to make yeah right? I, I feel like long term it's important enough to maintain our rotation rather than just try to dodge a input cost that may not even be here in a month you know it may go down who knows yeah i don't know uh just try not to react emotionally yeah you know? but it's hard to do it's hard to do um so what it speaking of uh, at least tangentially in the chemicals i'll circle back to something um you guys use herbicide to burn down yeah why that and not roller crimping is it just too much land for roller crimping no it's a it's a timing thing um Mm -hmm. you know cover crops got to be a certain stage to be effectively crimped yeah Uh, and we can't wait until that's the case on everything to plant because of our harvest windows in the south you know it's dry sometimes in the fall but we get a lot of rain so yeah. our harvest windows are tight yeah you know we can't wait on the ground to freeze to go harvest corn like <laughs> you know because it doesn't freeze it's just going to yeah. be a slop hole yeah so uh you know we have to make our planting window match our harvest window if that makes sense yeah so so we can't wait for you know cereal rye be at a, at a stage where we can crimp and kill it. So yeah. we still have to rely on herbicides, you know. But yeah, I mean, we've tried crimping small stuff and it just comes right back. Yeah. It just doesn't, just doesn't die. Um, speaking of which, um, the frost date for Wisconsin, where I live, is April 28th, um, which is late in the year uh, because we're so far north. Yeah. Are we already past your guys' frost date? In North Louisiana, we were. Like that was to the day or before yesterday or something like that. Yeah, you know, after the last few years i'm not even sure what it is anymore because you know we've had some really late frost but yeah uh if we're not past it we're getting real close um you know i'd say first april we're generally always safe to to plant but we'll still we've gotten april frost a bunch of times you know so you know i've I've seen a lot of two and three leaf corn get smoked to the ground and you know come back so uh it's it's apt to happen yeah but hopefully Hopefully it won't. Usually when it does is when my wheat's uh, flowering. That's when we usually get a good frost. So that's probably what will happen this year with all this $11 wheat. I'll get a good frost right there at flower and not have anything to sell. So, so I noticed a lot of the guys have uh, kind of unusual accents that work here. Um, yeah. South Africans. Why, why South Africans? Ah, well, uh, labor is just hard to find here. I mean, uh, 
Well, we got a medical marijuana facility in town that <laughs> employs you know 150 people. Oh wow! So uh, anybody that's going to be high quality labor in this local area, free will works there. Especially agriculture. Yeah, I mean, that's a really effort intensive and knowledgeable yeah. crop. Yeah, because they and, and you know they get to sit in the air conditioner up there and you know, work <laughs> eight hour shifts and you know so uh, oh I see people all the time talking about there's no labor shortage it's just you don't pay enough or you're hard to work for well you know we pay good and i'm easy to get along with and we <laughs> we still have to go outside the country to find yeah people to work you know so and the south african guys have been great we just there was some guys around here already had some south african guys working for them so that's how i settled on that them but uh, you know there's i know guys that have people from romania coming and working for them that oh, are wow. really impressed with them and uh people from Guatemala and Mexico and every, I mean, you know, that H2A program is vital to agriculture. Yeah. You know, I don't know, you know, I've told my brother before that, and he agrees with me, if we ever have to go back to trying to, you know, have to hire locally, you know, if they ever took that program away from us, that uh, we'd either have to scale down to what just me and him could handle or just get out altogether. Oh, wow. Because we just, it's just not a fight we're willing to fight anymore. Yeah. So. How did you even make the connection to South Africa? Uh, well, like I said, there was some farmers around here that had a few guys. And, yeah, and so you and, went to them and asked? Yeah, them? I okay. just said, you know, where are these guys coming from? And they hooked me up with the recruiter mm. firm that they're using, and we've been using them ever since. It seems like they would, and I'm not as familiar with the climate in South Africa as I should mm. be. I know uh, a lot of South Africans, when they had snow in Korea for the first time, I used to work in, uh, in Korea. Yeah with South Africans who taught English. And right. when they had snow there for the first time, it was the first time you'd ever seen snow. Yeah. Is there any kind of adaptation environmentally that has to happen or? Yeah, you know, uh, snow, yeah. You know, we had snow just the other day and <laughs> a lot of these guys hadn't seen that before, you know. So, yeah. Um, but the humidity is the biggest thing that they got to adjust to, mm -hmm. you know, coming from South Africa to here. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of guys that have had you know, workers from South Africa come to the South and work and they only last a year and then they want to go to the Midwest or somewhere where the humidity is a little lighter, you know, because it gets tough down here in the summer. Yeah. But uh, all of these guys have adapted well. They they enjoy it here and I enjoy having them. So. Now, how many years have you been going to South Africa? So 2017 you? was our first year. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So this will be our fifth year. So it's, it seems like at this point you've probably, you know, feel like you're comfortable saying it's working. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. 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 I mean, you know, you have you have hurdles you got to overcome with any group of employees and you know they're not they're not perfect just like anybody else you know we have little things go wrong here and there that we got to deal with but it's uh it's nothing we can't handle you know mm -hmm. so i'm speaking of medical marijuana i i wasn't i didn't realize that arkansas had legalized medical marijuana yep. when when was that was that been three years maybe okay. uh, maybe 2019. do you see an opportunity there Oh no, it's all um, it's greenhouse. It's all greenhouse, yeah. Oh, nothing, okay. nothing open air. Got it. Plus, I wouldn't want to try to grow something that expensive out with all the herbicide drift problems and stuff we have. I mean, they've yeah. got such a filtration system up there. <laughs> you know, they're they're very aware of the potential problems with herbicides. You know. Yeah. Uh, what about the 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 distant cousin in industrial hemp? That came through here uh, through Arkansas. It didn't come through my farm just because. I grew uh, produce with a buddy of mine for a couple of years and 
I know all about uh, over-promise and under-deliver. Mm -hmm. you know, brokers and stuff came to us wanting produce. Um, they liked the way we farmed, you know, the cover crops and stuff, and they were going to market this produce as regenerative and all this stuff. And they said, you know, Arkansas and the Delta is just the next California or Georgia just because there's no produce grown through here and, and we're having to ship from, you know, all these other places. It, it, they just, you know, they, they talked it up like there was big opportunity and they were putting in a, you know, a big distribution center in Little Rock and, you know, there's, there is a lot of that going in now, but man, we grew a bunch of stuff. And then when it came time to sell those brokers, if there wasn't just a shortage or if they weren't in need, they just left us high and dry. They went back to their, you know, people in Georgia and California and other places. They just, yeah. so we got hung pretty hard on that deal. Uh, you know, the market, just a serious market collapse. You know, we just couldn't sell anything. Yeah. There just wasn't any buyers for it because they were getting it from other parts of the country. What are we talking about here? Tomatoes or? Oh, no, it wasn't tomatoes. It was uh, squash, zucchini, okra, watermelons. Uh, what else did we have? Bell peppers. Uh, we had a big bunch of stuff. You know, they those brokers came in and put in an order of what they wanted in different times of the year. And that's what we based our planning off of. And then, like I said, if we had something going, like when we first started harvesting squash, we were ahead of some of the other regions. You know, we were rolling pretty good there for a little while. And then when the other regions came online, they just abandoned ship here. So when that hemp thing came through, I'd, I'd heard all that talk before, you know, yeah. of it's the next big thing and this and that. And I just didn't. Didn't bite on it twice, you know. <laughs> Have you heard of any successes with it at all? No. I heard of a lot of people planting it, but that was the last I heard of it. Usually <laughs> in this case, it was not a success. Yeah. If it was a success, they'd be out talking about it. Well, yeah. Or you'd see them at the barbecue joint dropping money on food. Yeah. And yeah. Or they'd be talking about planting it again, and I hadn't heard <laughs> of any of that. So, yeah, no, I think the hemp thing's pretty well dead around here. Have you looked into the possibility of carbon contracts? And why or why not? Yeah, we've we've looked at some of that stuff. And the one experience I've had with it, uh, you know, I did a whole lot of legwork and then find out I didn't qualify because of an additionality clause. Yeah. So I'm not going to do that again. Mm -hmm. you know, nobody mentioned that up front when I was doing all the work. Right. Uh, and then when it came time to cut checks, I, I didn't get one because... Cause I, cause all the stuff I was already doing, yeah, you know, it wasn't an additional benefit to the environment or whatever. So I don't know where that's going, uh, but I'm not going to do any more legwork for anybody until I get a guarantee that I'm going to get paid for this much because of doing these things. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment for supporting today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. And now, back to the podcast. 
No, growers often, uh, especially guys that are subscribers and readers and the people that we interview, they've been doing no-till for years. Mm -hmm. And that frequently, especially in this particular, you know, I guess you, you could characterize it as a second push, right? Because we had um, the market in uh, the 90s that yeah, in yeah. the Chicago climate exchange that kind of fell apart. Right. Um, so how do we in create a market that benefits you? Like flat payment for a number of years in the past, like... How, how, how do we construct something that gets you what you need and then sets you up to go forward? So the problem that I see with the stuff that I've seen so far is they're trying to put a blanket measurement across an entire country. Mm -hmm. All right, so they're looking at carbon as a static commodity. Like, like if you grow soybeans and you put them in a tank. Yeah. Well, that's not how carbon works. It's something that's cycled constantly. Yeah. So, you know, they want you to accumulate carbon in the soil and you're doing that, but they're wanting to measure it as a static thing. And that's not the case. Like where you're from, Wisconsin area, mm -hmm. you know, all are frozen half the year. Yeah. So microbiology in your soil stops yeah. here. I mean, it was 80 degrees at Christmas this year. <laughs> so any carbon that I'm sinking, the microbiome is it's cycling. Constantly it's constantly cycling eating through. it. So for them to use the same measurement techniques that they use in Wisconsin and Arkansas mm -hmm. is guaranteeing me that I'm never gonna see a payment. Whereas technically, I'm sinking more carbon into that system than they are in Wisconsin. Yeah. You know, but because they get to actually store it right. during the dormant frozen phase, they're gonna pick up that measurement. Where here, the more I sink in, the more my microflora goes up right you know so the more you add the more it's going so there's no way for me to ever get a payment on that yeah Where, even though i'm sinking more carbon probably than anybody north of me because you can't hit a moving target that's basically. right that's yeah. right so the only way it's going to work is if they and they know all this stuff as far as if you generate this much green biomass of these plants how much co2 they're converting to oxygen and, and sugars out the roots i mean they know all that stuff mm -hmm. so you know, if I'm if I've got something green growing all year, they can probably do this with NDVI or something. They don't even have to go take hand samples. They can calculate relatively effectively how much carbon that I'm putting into that cycle underground, right? And and then pay based on that. That's how they're going to have to do it. You know, or they can have estimates of that. You know, if you do these practices, we know over you know this amount of time we we can confidently say it's going to sink this much carbon and just pay on practices yeah you know but everything i've seen has been they want to go they want to check this august and then they want to come back and check next august and pay you on the difference yeah. and that's never going to work here i mean it's just not so it seems like a market structured more like oil might be useful ironically enough where you've got texas light sweet crude versus oklahoma versus alaska all these places where you see it. That might be more of a way to think about how to do this. Yeah, I mean, you can measure it regionally, but again, if you're looking for a static increase in carbon, you're not gonna see that in a active, a year-round active soil. It's just not right. gonna happen. Because, you know, I mean, just look at any population. When you add food and resources to it, it grows. Mm. So, you know, the more carbon I sink, the bigger my underground micro biology gets right so 
I'm never going to get an accumulation of carbon. I'm just going to be feeding more mouths. Yeah. If that makes sense. Well, and even up north, there's some reticence. Um, yeah. You know, Gabe Brown. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gabe Brown gave us a presentation in Wisconsin where he was very down on carbon, told everybody in the room, don't sign a carbon contract right now. Yeah. It's very off-brand for him, mm -hmm. for lack of a better description. Yeah. So afterwards, I asked him about it. He said, well, basically, <clears throat> right now, their, their soil, temp, uh, soil samples only got down to two feet. He said, mm -hmm. I know from my own soil testing, I'm going down to four feet. And oh, I, yeah. des I deserve to be paid for that carbon, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's the other thing. You know, we've know we have field days and stuff in Arkansas. You know, for our we've got a group called the Soil Health Alliance, mm -hmm. and our whole purpose is to try to help farmers not make the mistakes that we did getting started. Yeah. You know, us and some other farmers that put this thing together. And, you know, we dig soil pits at all of those, and we'll have cereal rye roots at four or five, six feet. Yeah. You know, so yeah, if there's roots there, then there's exudates there. So yeah, mm -hmm. you're you're sinking carbon in that the entire profile where there's roots. So yeah. that's why they need to figure out how to pay on, you know, what you're doing above ground instead of trying to measure underground. Cause it's just, there's just so many variables that they're not going to be able to account for. Yeah. So what about biologicals? Have you considered any, uh, do you use any? Are you considering them? I don't use any. Uh, it seems to be the big thing with input prices so high. Yeah. Um, no, we don't use any biologicals. Uh, you know, in our starter fertilizer, we have a lot of biological food. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of sugar and and other things, but we do not apply biologicals. I just can't get on board with that. I just feel like it's a kind of a snake oil deal. You know, if you've got dead soil and you put a little bit in, through a jug through a tube, I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna do anything. You know, the only thing that we do is in our compost. You know, we make our make our native inoculum for our compost because yeah. we want native. Uh, saprophytic fungi and, and things like that breaking down our stuff so when we apply it on the field we're reintroducing native stuff but otherwise no we don't we don't mess with any of those it seems like that would be analogous to the situation that you mentioned before with um, I think it was carbon you, you did a lot of leg work but then yep. there was no payoff in that's the right end. yeah yep. yeah I, I could see that being the case with the bugs in the jug stuff yeah. yeah it's pretty natural natural cycle there you know if uh Big ag can jump on something that's going on good and, you know, convince a farmer that this is just as good, you know. You don't need to plant cover crops and do all that. You can just put this biological out there, you know. They're going to do that and they're going to convince some people and they're going to make a big healthy margin on it because it's they're selling them jugs of water with a little bit of stuff in it, you know. <laughs> but there's always going to be somebody that's going to fall for it, so. Yeah. Um, what are what are you implementing things new uh, new practices on a year by year basis and what are you trying this year that's new? We don't really have anything novel this year. Uh, you know we're we're further improving our uh, low population stuff. You know we're we're planting like twenty five percent of the recommended population for rice. Same with cotton. Uh, so we're trying to improve on those systems and they they both work really well uh last year so we've, we've got a few tweaks we're making you know that won't be significant improvements just a little more a little more efficiency as far as equipment setup and stuff like that just some things that we noticed through the year we wish we'd done different than yeah. we're doing this year but nothing really novel this year we're we're kind of settling into a groove now uh, is that because yeah. of the volatility and the input costs and everything like does it pretty dispose you towards maybe trying the same or stuff that you know that works 
Well, no, it's really just uh, we hadn't come up, we hadn't found any anything new that we really want to try yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been on a pretty fast-paced, uh, you know, experimentation phase here the last five or six years, and we're kind of finally figuring out, you know, what's really working good for us and doing those things. But, but yeah, I mean, the reason though, all, any of these systems came about is because of the price of things. Yeah. You know. Seed cost is ridiculously high, mm-hmm. and we can make the same crop with twenty five percent of the seed. So why would we plant the other three quarters? Can you give me an idea how your population stack up against your neighbors or guys that are maybe well, still doing the conventional stuff? You know, so I, I don't like to say neighbors because I don't <laughs> want to signal anybody out. But let's just say the company standard mm-hmm. for say the rice that we plant is. Uh, their standard planting rate is 22 to 25 pounds per acre. Oh, wow. Well, we're at four to six. Wow. And uh, that equates to about $130 an acre savings. Yeah. And we're making the same rice. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) that's, you know, so I mean, I can't speak for my neighbors, but I know that's good business for us. Yeah. So. Have you looked into alternative spacing? I know. There's a big debate right now about 30-inch corn. Bear just waited into the commodity classic with their short stature corn, yeah. possibly in the mix. Yeah, so we, we've uh, that's some of the things that we've been tweaking on, on this rice deal. So the first year we did it, we were 38-inch twin. Mm-hmm. Last year we were 15-23, and we had a lot better tiller counts just yeah. because we had more space between plants. And this year we're we're keeping that same spacing just because we're limited on bed space after that for our furrows. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're now we're tweaking the in-row space, so the the length between seed placement. Got it. So we're cutting the rate just a little more and widening the spacing on the seed. So, you know, and if you cut a half a pound off of the rate at the price that that stuff is, that's, that's significant. significant. Yeah. You know, so if we can cut a half a pound off our rate, we're saving a lot of money, you know, especially over 2,000 acres, I mean. Uh, in terms of your implements, do you yeah. use coulters or no? Uh, well, we've got coulters on our drill that we plant soybeans with. Mm-hmm. Just because we don't... Air drill or box drill? Box drill. We we had air drills and we got rid of them because <laughs> the closing systems weren't heavy enough. Yeah. So we went to the Great Plains box drills. But uh, we do use coulters on them just because we're not laying anything down in front. They're doing all the laydown work. So Yeah. But our planters, we just run disc openers. Yeah. And, and and we used to we tried cultures, row cleaners, all that. We ended up taking all of it back off. Oh. I think everybody goes through that. I've heard that so many times. Yeah. But you just gotta try it for yourself. So yeah. Uh but we don't run anything on our planters. Strip tillers swear by them, but that's a that's a totally different beast. Yeah, the strip till deal uh intrigues me. I've got some buddies that do that and it looks you know, they get some really nice looking stands behind those rigs, but strip tilling on beds like we got, it just doesn't work. Because mm-hmm. you you have the furrow and then you're on a strip till you have a dip in your bed and you get a big rain you got a it's just a it doesn't a work pool here, there, yeah. it doesn't work here uh, is your box drill heavy enough for no-till i know that's one of the issues. yeah that's that's the reason we went to that they're the great plains hd models the big oh, okay monsters you got to weight them up too or no oh uh, well we've got liquid on them so that that weights them down pretty good got it yeah okay uh, you know but our ground's not that hard so <laughs> we don't have to cut through a you know we're it's pretty silty here so yeah not too bad so not n- less of a concern about compaction then it sounds like yeah no we we uh 
ideally of one of these days we're going to try to get to controlled traffic but we're not there yet we, mm. we've got rtk equipment but our problem is our harvest platforms don't match our planting platforms yet yeah. and now is not the time to be spending money on <laughs> stuff just for that you know we'll, we've been making it fine without that we'll just keep going until we can it's on the it's on the wish list Five, 10 years, is that, that the big change that you see? More precision type technologies? Or do you see other big things looming on the horizon? Man, there's all kinds of stuff out there. Automated tractors and you know just all this stuff. But I don't know if, I don't know if that stuff will ever make it to us or what. You know, I see the practicality of that where you've got big wide open fields. Like in Northeast Arkansas, they've got huge big fields, not a lot of trees. I think that'd work great up there. But you know, we got a lot of 20s and 30s and trees everywhere and yeah you know i just think it'd be a nightmare trying to get all set up and, i mean if i can put a person on there i'll just keep doing that <laughs> the old-fashioned way yeah all right yep but I, I tell you one thing i do like that i've seen is these drones uh for i was gonna ask for about those spraying actually. applications yeah uh i got a buddy in georgia he, he uh uh one's row cropper and the other one is a vegetable farmer and i think they're both running them uh i'm on a message board with them i know the row cropper is he's getting them and he said he can run four at a time mm -hmm. and they do his herbicide yeah you know, he can just do it from his laptop and uh he's got one guy with a chemical truck filling them you know so a <laughs> landfill landfill he said he can spray over a thousand acres a day with them wow and uh you know do it when it's wet doesn't have to pay the airplane yeah you know so if you got if i mean that that you can save a lot of money quick doing that. Yeah. Do you uh, do you use aerial spraying here, like plane or drone? Or? Yeah, we, we use plane when we have to. Okay. We try not to, but it's a necessary evil as much rain as we get. Yeah, so, so it's getting to that that time of year. I saw one of the one of the pilots. I think he was out doing practice runs on a field. Yeah, there was he some guys. He was coming low, but he didn't spray anything. Yeah, there was guys putting burn down out <laughs> here yesterday. We had a good, nice, calm day yesterday, mm -hmm. and there were some guys putting some burn down on some corn ground. And uh, I'm just going to wait a little while longer. I'm going to see if it dries up before I do it. Um, what of the lessons that you've learned since starting this do you think is broadly applicable? What's the takeaway for farmers maybe that aren't in Arkansas? Oh man. Uh, so many things, huh? Yeah, there's a lot, but <laughs> you know, one thing that, and I still catch myself doing this is letting fear uh, influence a decision. You know, like, uh, Oh, I don't know. Up until the, the invasion, it looked pretty good. But, you know, people were trying to get us to buy fertilize all last fall because, you know, oh, it's going up, it's going up, it's going up. And it is up right now, but it's just in the last few days, you know, last week. Yeah. But there was a point this winter when we fertilized wheat where we were actually, you know, $300 cheaper than what it would have priced for in the fall. So if I'd have let them scare me into it, you know, I'd have been out. $300 a ton, you know, it's just, it's like that for everything, you know, especially getting into this system. I hear all the time, you know, if you don't put out P and K, you know, your, your yields are going to suffer and this and that. Well, early on, that really bothered me when I heard that. And I was testing a lot to, to, you know, verify what my theory was. And now I don't listen to it anymore because I've been doing it for, you know, six, seven years at this point. But, you know, I could have easily gotten scared into buying stuff that obviously don't need. Yeah. You know, so. It's that FOMO, I guess. It's FOMO. It's that's fear it. of missing out. It's FOMO. Yeah, you just got to temper that. And it seems like young farmers are a lot more susceptible to it. I know I was when I was 
when me and my brother were first starting, man, we wanted to make the biggest yields because that's the only way we saw to make money. And we ended up losing money because of it. Yeah. Because it's just not that easy. If it's if you just apply more and get more bushels, and you know, we'd all be rich. You know, but it's not that simple. Right. But it's it's marketed to you that it is. So yeah, you know, as it, a farmer. Well, and I think that's an intergenerational thing too. Like multiple generations have been told. You put this on the crop, you get this yield. There's a yeah. direct line. And, and one of the things that's weird about, reason I ask you about biologicals, yeah. uh, they're not, the responsible uh, people that are selling yeah. this are basically not saying that. They're yeah. saying, you know, this will help uptake, mm-hmm. but we're not yet seeing the kind of consistency yeah. that is going to, you know, and I think that's a harder sell, right? Because you guys are bottom line focused yeah. always. Yeah, and, yeah. and so then it's harder maybe to justify Right. If you're not going to get that consistent return, yeah. Why get the why put the investment out there in the first place? Well, like one biological, right? <clears throat> I, this one slipped my mind, but it's that insecticide for Heliothus, that that virus. Mm-hmm. That is one biological we do use because oh, okay. it is effective and it is cheap. Yeah, I mean it is a great product. And uh, this is just a virus. Is it targeted specifically to just species? To, just or? to species. Yeah, okay. just a corn earworm. Got it. So. Uh, which gets in our beans, cotton, corn, everything down here. I mean, yeah. You know, so it's a really good product for us. But that's the only real biological that we use, and that sucker is consistent. I mean, yeah. It's year over year. It's death. Yeah. So you know, and it's good death. I it's guess. good. I mean, it's, tar- <laughs> it's yeah. You're not broad spectrum killing everything. You know? All right. It only affects that species. So that's one we really like. So yeah, if they got some biologicals like that, well, that's something we'll definitely look at. But. You know, it's bad enough that they have products out there that they promise you five bushel increase or then you don't get that. Right. But if you're trying to sell and say, well, you may get this, that's really going to be. Yeah. Really going to be tough to buy. No, you you hear a lot of sighs whenever that that comment inevitably comes out. Oh, yeah. I mean, the only people that are out there right now making those guarantees is Pivot Bio. Yeah. But that's they're basically saying we're specifically targeting synthetic neutral uh, nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And we're going to make this bacteria that fixes the nitrogen out of the air using gene editing. So that's kind of a, yeah. a different thing. A lot of the other stuff is like you'll have to still put in nitrogen, but this bacteria right. takes your mineral stuff and makes it easier for plant to use. You know, there's lots of... Uh algaes and bacteria out there that do that now that right don't need a, a host plant like a soybean yeah so i don't know that they need to gene edit one but <laughs> you know because you know there's soils in the in the world that make enough nitrogen with native microbes that they don't have to apply nitrogen right so i mean that could happen anywhere if you get get to that point but Oh yeah, what was it? Uh, Ed, I don't know if you did you read the Plowman's Folly at all? The, yeah, yeah. Ed Faulkner. Yeah. He talks about the forests. You yeah. know, like there's there's plenty of natural ground out there that does just fine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, that's I cite that all the time. Yeah, I like that book. I read that a couple of years ago. I, his writing style leaves something to be desired. Yeah, it's hard to read. <laughs> it's hard to read for sure. But he he does make he does make a lot of sense. Yeah. But he was a farmer, not a writer. So, right. Exactly. You know, so. So, a farmer and an educator because yeah, he did yeah, crop yeah, he stuff a, for a yeah, while. Yeah, he was right? an extension agent. Yeah, yeah, he was sharp guy. But yeah, he wasn't a, he wasn't Shakespeare by any stretch. <laughs> so. um, we we touched briefly on FOMO and Shakespeare. I got to ask, um, how has social media changed farming? Is it made? Does it make it easier for you to pick up practices you like? Does it give you new ideas or is yeah, it a know, nuisance? Well, it's a nuisance and a, <laughs> it's, it's both. Um, yeah, I've got a network of friends that I've developed over social media and coming to like no-till farm 
meeting and stuff like that that I mm-hmm. stay in touch with over social media and we share ideas and stuff all the time. So it's been really good for that. And of course, YouTube, man, YouTube is, yeah. people put stuff on there, what they're doing, and it is a lot of fun to look at that stuff. So right. I like that, but but yeah, the, the social media, it gets pretty wild sometimes. I, I just have to turn it <laughs> off sometimes because, you know, I can only hear about how the government is plotting to overthrow the, you know, fire departments to take over the food market or whatever craziness is happening out there today. I just, I can't, uh, I can't listen to all that. So I just got to abandon ship every once in a while. Thanks to Arkansas farmer, Adam Chapel for this discussion about no-till farming, its implementation, the equipment he uses and nutrient management. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. That's no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessonermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for tuning in.